Today we're going to be talking about a book, Stranger Guides. Some of you have read the book. Um, some of you, I've been at your churches talking about hospitality. Uh, if you've heard some of this material or read some of this material, there'll be some new things. It'll be a bit of a review, but there'll be uh, embedded in this talk will be a really, really good sermon on the book of Ruth. So preachers, you can put that in your back pocket. So you're welcome. Uh, so, uh, and that's new. That's not, that's a kind of something I discovered after I wrote the book. So, so let's talk about um, Stranger Guide. One of the things that I like to do when I talk to churches is, uh, or if I preach about this material, if you've heard me speak about this, you, you know this story. Um, but it's not in the book. And I like to begin a co my conversations about hospitality with this uh, commencement address by George Sanders. George Sanders is a novelist. And many years ago, he gave a commencement address to, uh, at the University of Syracuse. And um, the, the topic of his commencement address are like his great regrets in life, what he regretted most about his life. And what he regrets is uh, kind of surprising. So I want to start with that because it's, to me, going to frame how I'm going to approach um, what it means that God comes to us in strangers. So this is, this first part is from George Sanders. And he begins, what do I regret most about my life? Do I regret being poor from time to time? Not really. Working terrible jobs. I don't regret that. Do I regret skinny dipping in a river in the Sumatra and looking up and seeing 300 monkeys sitting on a pipe pooping into the river in which I was swimming with my mouth open, naked. No, I don't really regret that. Although I might, I might have regretted that. Um, now, do I regret the occasional humiliation? Like once playing hockey in front of a big crowd, which included this girl I really liked, and I somehow managed, while falling and emitting a weird whooping noise, to score on my own team, all the while falling and throwing my stick into the crowd, almost hitting the girl that I really liked. No, I don't really even regret that. But here's something I do regret. In the seventh grade, this new kid joined our class. And in the interest of confidentiality, we will call her Ellen. And Ellen was small, and she was shy, and she wore these blue cat-eye glasses that at the time only old ladies would wear. And when she was nervous, which was pretty much always, she had a habit of taking a strand of hair into her mouth and chewing on it. And so she came to our school and then to our neighborhood, and she was mostly ignored and occasionally teased. Does your hair taste good? That sort of thing. And I could see that this really hurt her. And I still remember the way she would look after an insult like that. Her eyes cast down, a little gut checked, as if having just been reminded of her place in the world, she was trying as much as possible to just disappear. And then after a while, she would drift away with that hair strand still in her mouth. And at home, I imagined, after school, her mother would say, How was your day, sweetie? And she would say, oh, fine. And her mother would say, are you making any friends? And she would say, sure, lots. 
And then sometimes I would see her hanging around alone in her front yard as if she was afraid to leave it. And then they moved. And that was it. No, no tragedy, no big final hazing. One day she was there, and the next day she wasn't. End of the story. And so now why do I regret that? Why, 42 years later, am I still thinking about that? Because relative to most of the kids in the school, I was actually pretty nice to her. And I never said an unkind word to her. And in fact, I sometimes even mildly defended her. And yet still it bothers me. So here is something that I know to be true. Although it's a little corny, and I really don't know what to do with it. But what I regret most about my life are failures of kindness. So I want to talk today about failures of kindness, uh, because I want to make an argument to you that that, that's kind of where hospitality begins or dies with the Ellens um, in our lives. Uh, So the the Bible has this interesting theme that that God comes to us kind of really in unexpected places. God shows up in strangers all the time. And the classic example of this is, you know, the, the primal story of hospitality is Genesis 18, where the three strangers come, and, and Abraham gives hospitality to, to the three strangers under a tree. And we think that's what Hebrews is talking about. So when Hebrews says, you know, don't forget to show hospitality because some have entertained angels unaware, we think that that's an echo of Genesis 18. So God comes and receives welcome. That's contrasted in Genesis 19, which we know what happens in Genesis 19. That's the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The two, two of the, the visitors collectively identified as the Lord, they go down into Sodom and Gomorrah because God's on a moral reconnaissance mission to see if the outcry, the wickedness of this city is as great as has been rumored, and they go down in there, and, and they have this test. So it's interesting, right? What's the test? God wants to see if a city is wicked. God wants to see if your city is wicked. My city of Abilene, is it wicked? What's the test? What's the test? Do you guys remember what the visitors are going to do? They're going to spend the night on the street. And they're going to see how hospitable the city will be to those strangers passing through on their streets. And I actually do not think the test of hospitality has changed at all. I think that's still God's question about whether or not the outcry in your town is as bad as it is rumored to be by how well we take care of the people sleeping on our streets. And we know that they don't in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they don't take care of them well at all. In fact, the only people saved in that story are Lot, who is the only person in the town that extended hospitality to the strangers, said, come stay with us. They're the only ones that get saved. And then all the way through the Bible, that that echo continues, God showing up unannounced in very unusual places. The famous example here is why Matthew 25, um, you know, the goats are going to hell. They're surprised (laughs) by that with, like, an explanation. The explanation is, you know, I was incarcerated. You never showed up. I was, I was homeless, and you didn't give me any shelter. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked. You didn't clothe me, and I was sick, and you never visited me. And they say, you know, logically, w- like, no, no, no. If we had actually seen you in any of those locations, like you're Jesus, we would have totally been there for you. 
And he's like, well, anytime you didn't do it for one of the least of these, that's, you didn't do it to me. Um, my other favorite example of God showing up as a stranger is uh, Jesus uh, takes a, uh, the disciples are bickering, and Jesus takes a child, puts the child in the middle of the, of the of his followers, and says, whenever you receive one of these children, that's me. And I think the shock of that, the kind of transgressive aspect about that, transgressive is just a term from the art community about art that offends your sensibilities. Like if you've ever been in front of modern art and went, ah, oh, that's really bad. That's, that's transgressive art. Uh, there's something transgressive about Jesus' hospitality. Like he's welcoming people that are a bit offensive. Um, I, I miss Brian Zahn's talk. He, did Brian talk about, what did he talk about? Did he talk about how beauty will save the world? Did he mention that? Okay. Do you guys know, Brian wrote a book um, uh, called How Beauty Will Save the World. And it's a quote from Dostoevsky, Beauty Will Save the World. And I was with Brian um, last summer, and he gave that talk. And I agree with Brian. Like I said, I think, I think beauty will save the world. I said the trouble is nobody finds Jesus particularly beautiful in the Gospels. It's not like Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. He's touching prostitutes and lepers. And everybody's like, oh, it's gorgeous. Like, I love it. Like, like nobody feels that it's transgressive art. His hospitality is a little bit offensive. And, and that's kind of a big theme of Stranger God. It's, it's that we, we have all these emotional feelings that are getting in the way. Um, so here's a, here's a takeaway point from today. The when I describe a stranger, I'm talking about a psychological relationship with somebody. The way we, where they are in our hearts and in our minds. It's not just that you don't know them. It's that we have feelings about them. Um, and these feelings interfere with our ability to, to, to welcome them. And in fact, the feelings are what make the hospitality hard and a bit, you know, transgressive. The, coming back to the child, though, the, the child example is transgressive for Jesus' followers because it's not for us because we children are kind of at the center of our affections already, particularly in American churches. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like children are already there affectionately at the heart of things. And then we build church kind of around them. That wasn't the case when Jesus grabs a child. When Jesus grabs a child and puts it at the center, um, that would be unusual, okay, because they were not at the center of the affections of that culture. Who would have been at the center of that culture's attention? It would have been men, and then who? Right? Be men, and then, then you're typically going to have women. And then you think children. I've actually learned it was actually worse than that. It's not men, women, children. It's men women, animals, because they were least valuable, and then children. And so you can kind of see what Jesus is doing in that example. He's grabbing somebody on the edges of their society, somebody who they wouldn't be paying attention to, somebody kind of off their radar screen. He grabs that person and puts them at the center in a bit of a shock. Like that's not who you thought would be standing there. Whenever you receive this person, that's me. Which is really one of the most disturbing stories in all of Scripture, I think. We're not, we're, I don't think we're properly worried about that text. Because what would it be like? Like, here's a challenge. What would it be like every day to wake up and go, who would be the last person I could imagine 
Jesus grabbing and putting it in front of me and going, by the way, that's me. Like, who's the, like, who would be, we all have these circles of diminishing care or diminishing kindness, right? There's a, there's a center of it, and it gets thinner and thinner, and then it starts getting chilly, and then it might even get, get hostile, right? On the, and then suddenly God's going to, like, put that person in front of you and go, by the way, that's me. And we're going to be there on Judgment Day going, really? That was really tricky. Really, like I didn't see that one coming, um, and and well, I can get you know I can get really offensive here if I wanted to, um, you know I could just start listing in Stranger God. I had this whole chapter of all these kinds of people I could put in front of you that that you would like like really that's the person. Um, anywhere from the Hillary supporter to the Trump supporter, I could put that person in front of you, and you're like that's that's hard. Okay, um, that's hard. Because it's funny how we kind of imagine ourselves as really tolerant people. Don't you kind of have that self-image? Like I'm a, oh, you, I mean, all of us, we're all delightful human beings, right? We're here at a lectureship talking about Jesus. Even in the afternoon and you're sleeping, you're sitting in these hard pews, you are wonderful human beings, right? But here's the thing is we all know we're kind of haters, right? I just got to get, it wouldn't take me but five seconds to figure out how you vote where you live, to put somebody in front of you like, okay, 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 that's a test right there. Like, I got to dig deep for this one. Like, we all have these triggers. And, and I want us to, to think about hospitality, um, about that person. What, is it, what does it begin like to begin widening the circle of our affections um, in, that, in that instance? Um, so uh, one of the things I, I like about... Uh, I've discovered since writing Stranger God is uh, one of the things I love is the book of Ruth. What I love about the book of Ruth um, is just a little tiny story of kindness uh, and how uh, Ruth ends up in a foreign land. She's completely unattached from any sort of protective family network and she finds herself out in a field working that day and uh, in and Boaz shows up, and he said uh, to his reapers, and this is chapter 2, he said, uh, And Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, uh, Whose young woman is this? Like, like, the whole thing hinges upon him spotting her. I mean, he's, he's, like, a, he's like an Old Testament equivalent of like a, an accountant, not, not just an accountant, a guy running an accountant firm during tax season. Like, like, it's harvest time. He has lots of employees. There's a lot of stuff going on in his life right now. This is a really busy time in his life. And of all the people that day in his workplace, he takes a minute to say, like, who's, like, who's that person? Like, who's, who's that? That, that... Like, that's Ellen. Right? That's the person on the fringes of your workplace, of your church, right? The last person anybody's going to see. He takes a minute to kind of go, who is that? And they explain who she is, and then he's very kind to her. And he says, stay here. Follow the, follow 
the young women here. Don't go to another field. He protects her from sexual assault. I've told my men not to touch you. He covers her with this kind of halo of, of kindness. Um, in a, we, in my, my wife's a theater teacher, and in, the, in Stranger God, I, I tell a story. We call this one of the rules of kindness is one of the rules of what she calls Room 41. My wife, Jana, her, her classroom is called Room 41. And uh, one of the rules of Room 41 is, well, the story is, one day Jana um, ran, young boy, kind of like an Ellen, like a little boy that been a little small guy picked on by the upperclassmen, runs into her room, shuts the door behind him, takes this deep breath, like, and says, I've been waiting to get to this period all day. He said, because nobody can be mean to me here. That's what, that's what ki- our kindness does to people. It, it carves out in a world a space where people are protected. And nobody can be mean to you here. And that's what kind of Boaz does for Ruth. He kind of carves out a space and says, Nobody's going to be mean to you here. I'm going to protect you from all of that. And you guys know what, what a gift that is. If you're like bumped into somebody in the middle of a really difficult situation, or um, in Stranger God, I talk about how like we treat. The example I give is, have you ever been like trying to f- go home? And you're the last flight out, and your flight gets canceled. Has there ever been that situation? Hopefully, it doesn't happen to you on the way home. But I've been there multiple times. You're there late at night. You're really tired. Everybody's tired, stressed out. You just want to get home. And then they, the flight's delayed, delayed, and delayed. And you're just, you're, just, you're like, it's going to get canceled. It's going to get canceled. Finally, like 1230 at night, it's canceled. And so everybody's got to get on a sh- You got to get all your vouchers and get rebooked. And it's not like they're booking you on the very first flight out the next day. You know, so you're... And, and there's one ticketing agent to check out, like, 40 hostile people. And this, you know, and this is Texas, right? Those are, like, 40 Christians in the line, you know? And, the, and it's all of them, right? You just walk, like, are you a Christian? Like, yeah, yeah. But they're all going to be horrible for the next hour, right? They're going to be horrible human beings. Because um, they're, why? Because they're upset, and they're stressed, and they're tired, and I get it, and I'm one of them. I'm ready. I'm in the line, ready to be this horrible human being. But have you ever had the, the, the capacity to kind of step back from your irritation and your stress and kind of consider that on judgment day, God's going to put a, a ticketing agent in front of you and go, by the way... That was me. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> that was hard. Because, like, all I just want to do is go, oh. You know? But sometimes you get it. Like, sometimes you see it. And you're kind to somebody. And you step up to that ticking agent. And maybe you're going to give them 60 seconds of kindness. But has anybody ever, like, dug deep and done that for somebody? And if you just, you, you give them the, nobody's going to be mean to you here. Now, I'm leaving in a minute, and another Christian will come up and dehumanize you shortly. Um, But for a moment, but for a moment, um, nobody will be mean to you here. And you go up and you make a joke and say, how's your night going? And, 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 And have you noticed 
like somatically in their body, how their posture changes. Like they go from being attacked and defensive and they just breathe and relax. You can give somebody that space. Like what would it be like to move through the world where you just gave that gift to everybody? You know, to be that kind of person. Um, to, to, I think that's why... I think that's why people were so attracted to Jesus. I really do. I just think he had that ability that he would protect people with his kindness. And so, so all that, um, I need to advance this slide. Uh, so the way I want to describe hospitality for you guys is, is not, when, when people think about hospitality, they think about like a, a benevolence ministry at my church. And they think about having a meal at their house and welcoming people over. Um, throwing a block party, and I think it's all of those things. I want to be clear. Um, I'm a psychologist, though. To me, I want to think about hospitality as spotting the Ellens in the world, spotting the, the, the person that Jesus would have put in front of us and said, that person on the edges of your care. And so the, the issue is, like, who's in your moral blind spot? That, that's where I would like us to have our churches think. Somebody's in your, I'm not even talking about in your peripheral vision. Like you can kind of see that person. I'm talking the person that's just like here. Like they're affectionately speaking. They're not even on our radar screen. Who's that person in your moral blind spot? Hospitality, I would argue, is beginning to turn and see that person with a bit of a shock that person is God coming to us in a stranger. And so I want to shift now and talk a little bit about um, uh, spiritual formation, okay? Uh, I want to talk about hospitality as an affectional capacity, um, a softening or opening of one's heart to see Ellen and have the moral courage. But the trouble is, well, here's the trouble. The trouble is, here's how most of us think you get to be like Jesus. Here's, here's the plan. Okay? Here's the plan in our minds. What we do is we go through life, and we get to kind of a moral fork in the road. Right? We get, we, we, we're going through life, and we're going to get to a point where we're going to make a decision. And when we get to that fork in the road, um, we then, you know, we, we then ask ourselves questions like, you know, what would Jesus do in this instance, right? Like, well, you know, I've arrived, I have a choice, and I can go down this, and I can be unhospitable, and I can be unkind, I can kind of be mean and rude, or I can choose to, you know, extend kindness and protect somebody with compassion, right? Don't you, most of us think that way. And I would say that's, your, that's our problem because it's all wrong. <laughs> this is what happens. This is the way it really happens. You're, you're stressed and tired, and you're, you're trying to get stuff bought, you know, to, to go cook dinner tonight. And you're standing in this line, this long line at Walmart, you know, and you're, 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 you're hurrying up. And do they have Walmarts in California? Okay. Well, good for y'all. Um, that's my, that's my go-to example. You're in this long line at Walmart, 
and the lady in front of you pulls out a big wad of coupons. And you're like, ah, ah, you're, you know, and there I am, I'm stuck. This, this horrible person trying to, trying to save money of all things. And you're just going to be there, uh, you know, or somebody's actually still writes checks, you know. <laughs> some, people like, some people in the room are always like, I write checks. I know. We're, very, we're horrible. We're, we're. Right? Like, so you just, you just get this flashy, like, ah, you obstacle <laughs> to my life. You know, I'm trying to get home, and you're just angry and upset. That's life. Nobody, here's our problem. This is Richard Beck's opinion about the number one spiritual formation problem facing the, the Lord's church. I'm about to describe it. Nobody sits there in the middle of Walmart next to the magazines and the mints and went, wait a second. This is one of those moral forks in the road. Like right here, right now. Like who knew that this would be the moment today where I can make a choice. No, you're just mad and irritated. Right? Nobody's standing in that long line in the middle of the night at the airport going, hey, everybody, this, is, this line is an opportunity. This is one of those moral forks in the road. Nobody does that, right? Nobody's going like, hey, let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch, you know, you know Monday. We're going to go back to work. Let's go to lunch. And somebody goes, let's, hey, should I... Invite Susan, you're like, uh, no, no. Susan's a bit of a freak show, and so, no. Right? You know, or John's talks too much about his golf game. I don't know what irritates you about people. You know, but there's this moment when you're kind of like, am I going to include them? Or are we going to kind of like, no, no, let's just, let's us. You might have done that already at Pepperdine. Haven't you? Where you kind of go like, hey, hey, don't. Hey, we're going to go out tonight. Don't invite them. <laughs> because, you know, whoo, you know, they're a piece of work. Like, well, I, nobody, nobody's in the office space Say, hey, should we invite Susan? And he goes, hey, this is one of those moral forks in the road. Like, right here. We could welcome her or not. And so instead you just, good point. Don't invite her. Go to lunch. And Susan's alone, right? And then, what's, and then, unfortunately, we're all going to be going to hell. And there we are, ready to go to hell. And we're like, what? Excuse me. <laughs> I shouldn't be joking about this. <laughs> You'd be like, excuse me. Like, why? <laughs> are we going to hell? And God's going to put Susan in front of us and go, by the way, that was me. And you're like, ah, man. So the point here is, the, the reason why we're not improving on hospitality is like nobody's paying, nobody's paying attention. We, we, we think being like Jesus is a choice we're making. I would like to argue today it's a feeling you're having about somebody else. Those feelings, and as you know, you don't choose your feelings. They just come to you. They are contempt. 
Has anybody experienced any contempt lately for the world? You know? You, you're aware of what, so, have you guys been on social media? It's this thing. And you can look through it and get really angry at the world <laughs> really quickly. And, and again, so it's contempt or disdain or like, what are the world's populated? I think I have a line in Stranger God. You know, it says, you know, I, I said, you know, the hardest people we have to show hospitality to are people we think are idiots. You know, like just the people, you know, all those people, the people ruining the world, those people. Um, and so it's contempt or it's fear, anxiety. Uh, it's, it's disgust. And all, we could go through all the emotions. What I'm suggesting is those, those feelings that, that just populate our social psychology, that's the battleground. That's, that's the location where this battle is going to be fought. The trouble is, though, you're not choosing to have those feelings. And I don't know if you've noticed, feelings are hard to switch off. Have you not noticed that? Have you ever been really sad and somebody tells you to, to cheer up? You're like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. You know, I, I just, I really, I'll just cheer up. You know, it solves, solves a lot of problems. Cheer up. Calm down. Quit freaking out. Calm down. Like, thank you. That's the most helpful thing I've heard today. Thank you. Same with people, right? If, you're, if, you're, if you find certain kinds of people scary, you know, you, you can't look at those, shame those people, just say, quit being scared. You know, like, you know, we find some people a little bit anxiety-inducing, and we find some people, you know, we have things of superiority and scorn and all that, all those kinds of things, and we don't even know. We don't even know it's happening. We just have the feelings, and so many things can trigger them. I could tell you know, politics is a great example, but it's, it's some of it's so it's subtle little things. Like one of the like what in the Stranger God, I give an example like habits, like habits. The way we quickly have an affectional response to somebody um, because of a lifestyle or a habit. Like I work with um, uh, marginalized, economically marginalized people. And a lot of those people are in recovery. And, and if, if, if anybody works with people in recovery, anybody, how many of you guys work with people in recovery, right? Like you know a lot of those people are smokers. You gotta deal with a lot of smokers. Like if you're dealing with anybody who's dealing with addiction history, they're gonna be out there smoking. And but a lot of us are like middle class, suburban people, and smoking has become highly moralized. Not only is it, not only you're a sinner or a bad person, it's also now an ec a socioeconomic marker. Like upper class people wouldn't, wouldn't smoke, lower class people do. And so we have, so it's a trigger. So if you see, like for example, hypothetically, totally hypothetical, it is actually hypothetical. If I was out there catching a cigarette before I walked in to talk to you, right, you, you, you would, have feelings about that, would you not? You, you, and it's not like you chose those feelings. You just see somebody, and you automatically have some, some moral categorization. Like, that's kind of weird. And that's, what I, that's my point. Like, we, we, we don't notice these forks in the road where we're judging people and have feelings, and we've already turned them into the Ellens. We've already pushed them to the sides of affection. And then you can go through a long litany. Some of your triggers are not my triggers. I'm actually not really triggered by politics. Like, I have friends across the political spectrum, and I like, I like arguing with them, but I don't, they don't trigger me. Some of us, though, that is the trigger. Like, that is the biggest trigger. I have little OCD triggers. So I struggle a little bit with my friends. Like, I tell the story in um, Stranger God where some of my friends told me, they are like, oh, yeah, the bug man was over. Like, yeah, yeah, I have him come over too, cockroaches. Like, no, no, it was bed bugs. Like, bed bugs? 
you're in my car, you know, and I'm like freaking out. So I'm like, I like, I ch- you know, I checked the sh- my sheets at home for like months afterwards. My, my wife's like, why are you, I didn't want to tell her I'm looking for bed bugs. She, you know, what are you looking for? I'm like, nothing. I'm not looking for anything. It's every night you're just peering at the fabric of your, of our sheets. No reason. What's the thread count on this, baby? Just really interested in sheets now. But I was like freaked out. It took me a while. So some of us are like OCD triggers. And, and you might think, oh, that's just me. But no, I had a, um, a doctor. I, I gave that example. And a doctor came up to me, you know, like MD and said, I work in the ER. And like, that's my big, like, bed bugs freak me out. Like, I still can't. So some of us, it's that. And we, and we have the people moralize lifestyle choices. I could just, if I just want to kind of illustrate, let's take an inventory of like how much you're a hater. Well, I did the politics thing, but here's one. I'll say some things, and you're going to be like, oh, they're the worst. Here we go. Ready? We're in California. Vegans. <laughs> now, some of you are like, okay, that hurts because I'm a vegan. So, lim- gun owner, hunter, you're like, okay, you got me. Those people are terrible. You know, like, uh, we, go th- we go through all of these things, and I, I, if I tell you something about lifestyles or habits, you have feelings, and we don't even notice and we wonder why we're not more hospitable um, to each other. So how do you change that? How do you change that? Well, a lot of you guys have been uh, exposed to the work of James Smith. Do you guys know James Smith's work? Uh, Jamie Smith, his book, You Are What You Love. Um, and James Smith makes this argument in his book, You Are What You Love. He, he contrasts, okay, this is the nerdy moment in the talk, between a kind of a Cartesian versus an Augustinian view of human person. Now, Cartesian meaning Rene Descartes, you know, his famous phrase, cogno ergo sum, which translates as what? I, I think, therefore I am, right? So this Cartesian view is that we are what we think, right? It's a focus on, the, on cognition and intellect and reason. An Augustinian perspective, he suggests, is not you are what you think, but you are what you, what you love. And it's a focus on our affections and our heart. And as I've just described for you, I think that is the problem. Okay? Because hospitality is no longer, if, if the preachers in the room have done their jobs well, it's not an educational problem anymore, is it not? Like, we're all aware. You've all heard of Matthew 25. Does anybody need a retelling of the parable of the Good Samaritan? So we're all in agreement. So it's not an educational problem anymore. That's I think, therefore I am. Somehow if we can, if you can hear one more good sermon, um, or, or you guys are probably very bookish people, you're on a lectureship, one more good book to read, you know, and that's going to be the tipping point you know, on this hospitality thing. And so... And so spiritual formation looks, from a Cartesian perspective, like education. We just need better education. Um, but if it's a heart problem, and hearts are not easily changed through acts of willpower, because we hardly even engage the will in time to catch it. Once the feeling's out there, it's hard to, it's hard to walk it back. Have you ever tried to do that, though? Like you have that flash of feeling, you try to walk. This is like every, 
every marital spat you've ever had is this way. <laughs> it's like, I said that, let me walk that back. Well, too late, can't do it, like, that's out there. It's the same way with people. We have these feelings, and it's really hard to kind of to roll, that, roll that back in. Um, just from a neuropsychology point of view, once your limbic system is engaged, which is your, the seat of your emotions, once that's engaged, it's really hard to, to talk to you. Or me. Uh, have you not noticed that? Somebody, the minute they get kind of tense or a little upset, it's best to just, I would, I would just walk it back at that point. It's really going to hard to reason your way around those emotions. And that's the way it happens with human beings as well. Once the feelings are out there, it's really hard to walk it back. So how are you going to change it? Um, you're going to change it through not education, but spiritual uh, formation. Th the problem, though, is... Um, with, with spiritual formation. This is my argument. This is my pushback on, on James Smith, and this is my pushback on um, a lot of the spiritual formation literature that we think about, is that um, when we think of spiritual formation, like if I was going to ask you, what are like spiritual disciplines? We can make a long list, can we not? What's our, what are spiritual disciplines? You're going to do like a Richard Foster study at your church, or you're going to think of what? Prayer? And here's the thing is, this is what, the funny thing about prayer, and again, not to offend anybody, but my goodness, there's nothing more hilarious than a Bible study on prayer. You know, like, have you guys ever done a prayer study at your church? Like, here's contemplative prayer, and we learn about it, and we take notes. Here's petitioning, and we, oh, that's a different kind of prayer. We write that down, and look at this long list of different kinds of prayers, and and nobody prays. We're just, it's still this educational model, right? We're still just, you know, learning all, we're learning a lot about prayer. And we don't, and we look at our prayer lives and we go, but you know, I don't think I've changed in my prayer life though, but I could rattle these things off to you. So again, it's the formation versus education model. So prayer, what else? Spiritual disciplines are prayer, fasting, Sabbath keeping, what? service, meditation, you know, a lot. And, and you'll notice a lot of these spiritual disciplines, and even in James Smith's book, a lot of it is focused on the relationship between me, me and God. And I want to be clear that, that that's, a, that's a superficial critique, okay? But I'm not above being superficial. I'll take any cheap shot in a debate I can get. Um, but because, you know, the idea is, but if we could learn to love God better, then that should, like, spill over, right? There's this, like, trickle-down theory in spiritual disciplines. Like, if somehow I can get closer to God, then the trickle-down theory is that that then will spill over into loving one's neighbor. Is that how you kind of understand it? And so I, so by going off and having Sabbath and, 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 and fasting and thinking more about God, then I'm going to reap these, uh, these interpersonal benefits. Like, I, I'm going to be so in tune with God after my weekend that uh, I'm not going to be irritated with that lady when she pulls her coupons at Walmart. That's the, the trickle-down theory. And, or I'm going to be more quick to invite Sally to a, to a business lunch. You know, like, that's the trickle-down effect. And as best I can tell, and I, I could be wrong about this, like, I, I just think it gets stuck up there. 
I just really think a lot of the spiritual disciplines get you kind of it gets stuck up there and it doesn't trickle down. Um, and so my the thing I advocate for in Stranger God is we need a spiritual practice that begins with the person right in front of you. It's it's a it's a and service comes in you know when they talk about spiritual disciplines service comes close to that but it's not service that's what I'm talking about because. When you're standing there in line at Walmart, you're not on a mission trip. Painting this church three times that summer. Okay, that was a cheap shot. Anyway, you know, like it is literally this person right in front of you. And so I don't even think when the spiritual disciplines mention service, they're, even, they're, they're, they're on point. Because, again, service is still that, that thing I'm going to do on the weekend. It's not right here, right now with the person in front of me. We need a practice that begins kind of right there. And I don't have time to get into it. You can read the book. I think it says now available behind me. Um, I actually totally, this is how neurotic I am. I actually was trying to look for a slide because I was like, that's too self-promotional. But it's the only slide I had. Um, you don't need to buy the book because I'm telling you all the good stuff right now. Um, but the, the, what, I, what I do in, I went looking. The story I tell is I'd go to church after church, and they were like, well, how do we become more hospitable? How do we become more kind? And I was like, well, we got to do, we have to have habits. We got to have practices. Like, it is, and, and, and I didn't say this in the book, but more and more when I go to churches, I go, how, how do, let's go back to the prayer thing. How, how do we cultivate a better prayer life? And more and more, I just come back to the word intentional. Like, I just really think it all begins and ends there. Like, you got to be intentional about it. It's, it's one of the big ironies to me about Christians is we know, how to, we know how to fix everything except being like Jesus. <laughs> like, if you need to lose 20 pounds, you all know what you need to do? What do you need to do? We, oh, yeah, we, I know exactly what I need to do. I need to start, like, work, you know, exercising and like tomorrow, if you said that's your goal, you'd know exactly what you need to do. If I look at my students and go, hey, you want to improve your GPA? Do you know what they need to do, you need to do? And they're like, oh, totally. Like I, I, need, to, I need to study more. I need, we know what we need to do, okay? Um, do you want to start living within your budget? Do you all know what you need to do? You get one of those little books and have envelopes and whatever, you know, like cut up the credit cards. We are, we are masters at changing our behavior. We know exactly what we need to do. And you walk up to people and go, how do you become more like Jesus? They're like, I have no idea. I don't know. I pray. You know, I read my Bible a lot. Like, like we, we're just totally flummoxed. So there's at least one vocabulary word out there today. Flummoxed. <laughs> You know, I love that word. You're just, we're just kind of stuck. We just lack, lack good ideas. I guess we'll do, the, we'll do the spiritual disciplines thing. You know, I'll read the Bible, I'll pray, and then suddenly I'll be kinder and gentler and more patient. So if you want to be more patient, here's a, here's a thought. <clears throat> Wake up with that as an agenda. Focus on that. Where are you impatient during the day? You know, become intentional about that. You can focus on your finances. You can focus on your weight. You can focus on whatever it is. And yet we kind of lack a degree of intentionality about the fruits of the Spirit that I find shocking. 
I find absolutely shocking. Um, how, you know, I, I looked at my, my Bible class at church, and I said, like, you know, how many of you guys have made being kinder, like, your agenda today? Is it even on? Maybe I need to work on my prayer life. I need to get in Scripture. But, like, literally, like, kinder, patient. Anybody? And you're like, well, I don't really think about it. And then we wonder why this journey towards sanctification isn't moving at a, at a, at a decent clip. I, I think we lack a degree of intentionality about all that. So one way to become more intentional, and the reason why I kind of stumbled upon this is I went out there looking for hospitality exemplars. And unfortunately, a lot of hospitality exemplars are like just too heroic. They, they make, they were, they're great books, but they're, they daunt us. Like, does anybody like Tattoos on the Heart? Gregory Boyle, Homeboy Industries in town. Oh, you should totally visit it. Biggest gang rehabilitation outreach project um, in the world. Homeboy Industries, Tattoos on the Heart. And you read a book like that, and you're like, ah, that's awesome. But then, but then you're like, but, you know, I got a soccer game to coach tonight. Uh, you know, like I, working with gang members <laughs> in LA isn't my thing. And, and, and so all I find is my, my little pedestrian life where I'm driving kids to soccer practice and I'm on the snacks this weekend and, or you're working at your job. And, and so a lot of us feel really, and so here's the other bit of stranger God that I want to give you with. A lot of times when we talk about hospitality or churches, most people just feel exhausted, right? And, and, and when we talk about hospitality as, you know, having people over to your house, they're like, when am I going to get a chance to do that? And, and, and so uh, th- whatever this practice is going to be, it's got to be a practice that people with, like, mortgages and day jobs and soccer games to coach on the weekend has got to, they can do. Everybody could do it. And the practice I discovered was from a little Catholic saint, perhaps unusual for Church of Christ crowd to hear about, but her name is Therese of Lisieux. Um, that's a probably butchering of her French name. In Texas, we pronounce it Therese Lisieux. That's the way we pronounce it down there. But she uh, is famous in the Catholic tradition for what is called her little way. And, and she, she was a person who found herself kind of trapped in a very small little life and, and was wanting to do big heroic things for Jesus and didn't know how to do it. And, and so what she did is she became really intentional. And, and, the, and the, here's how a, a Mother Teresa, she's now a saint, I think, isn't Mother Teresa? Saint Teresa of Calcutta. She described, and by the way, do you know Mother Teresa of Calcutta? She took her name from Therese of Lisieux. This is a Spanish version of it. That's how influential this little Catholic saint was. Um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta describes little ways. We do little things with great love. And so it is this intentional practice of paying attention to how you stand in a line with great love. It is practicing being rebooked by American Airlines <laughs> with great love. It's practicing inviting coworkers and going to lunch 
with great love. It is a practice that if you in, embark on this journey to be, to be the kind of person as you move through the world, nobody can be mean to you here. Like, you're that kind of person. If you be, embark on that journey, like, that's your obsession. It's like your spiritual passion is to spot the last person in the room. Like, that's your obsession when you hit the door on Sunday morning or when you go to the water cooler. Like, who's the first person getting lifted? Who's my Ellen? Okay, who, who would the, be the person that Jesus would put in front of me and go, that was me, and beat Jesus to that game? Like, that, that to me is where hospitality has to begin. Because um, if we don't win that battle, then what happens is, as I describe it in Stranger God, you're, you're just going to go through life on social autopilot. And social autopilot is nobody in the room is trying to be mean. Nobody's trying to be cliquish. Nobody's trying to be any hospitable. You know, but as years pass, we kind of look around and go, you know, all my, what, you know, all my friends kind of look like me. And I don't have a lot of diverse relationships economically or racially or politically or, you know, I, I don't, no, nobody in this circle was kind of a surprising and beautiful story. Um, and you didn't, we don't end up in these homogenous groups of like-mindedness from malice. Because, like I told you, nobody's actually making any decisions at all. We didn't choose it. We felt our way into our cliques and our zip codes and our very homogenous churches. We felt our way into those things. And we look around and go, huh. And it's, so it's moving into the transgressive shock of, of it all. Like, huh, this would have been the last person I would have thought here. And so you can, we talk more about that, but I'm running out of time. So I do want to give you the ending of the sermon on the book of Ruth. And so I want to end with this. Oftentimes when I talk about hospitality is kind of the intentional practice of kindness, which is kind of the way I sum, sum up the book, right? That intentional practice of kindness, of seeing the person right in front of you all the time, everywhere. Picking up the person in your moral blind spot. Oftentimes when I go to churches, uh, there's, there's always a couple of people. Usually it's the social justice warriors in the crowd that go, really? It's being nice, kind. That's That's... I mean, I don't know if you've looked around, but the world is falling apart. And you're talking about kindness. Really? So, what struck me about the book of Ruth a little while back um, is how it begins, actually. And it begins like this. In the days... When the judges ruled. Did you catch that? In the days when the judges ruled. When was the last time you read the book of Judges? It's awful. It is horrible. It ends 
with the worst thing in the Bible. I would not recommend reading it, and no flannel graphs allowed. There's no veggie tale that's coming out of the final chapters of Judges. It is horrible. It is political chaos. It is violence against women, and it's just awful. And it ends with the kind of like, and that's what, that, you know, this is what it was like without a king. It was like, this is what it looks like if you just let human depravity at its worst. And then in the middle of it all, the Bible zooms in on a daughter-in-law making a promise to her mother-in-law. And she keeps that promise, even though it's hard. And the Bible zooms in on this little intimate story. Boaz going, uh, hey, who? Who's that? And take, he's like, this, it's this little intimate story of little people doing little things, little acts of kindness. The world is falling apart. You guys, we're watching our social media feeds. It's like the world is falling apart. And during the time of the judges, the book of Ruth is this little ode to kindness. And we know how this story ends, doesn't it? Don't we? Because Boaz and Ruth are the great, great grandparents of King David. And we know who was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And so I will end with this. The world really is falling apart, it seems. Um, And I don't know how to fix it. But I look at the book of Ruth, at little people doing little things, and I say to myself, kindness, that's how God saves the world. Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for coming. We're done.